Good morning, church. This morning we're going to read from Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, said, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of God. Good morning again, church. We are in this beautiful, thrilling Old Testament book, short book, but a thrilling account of Ruth, a story of God's great love for his people. Ruth is a a story of redemption. You see it here, a redemption story, meaning it's a story about God's ability, his desire to rescue people from the darkness of, of sin and suffering and loneliness and insecurity and then bringing them into the light of his love. You know, God is so good at 
taking people who we might think are too broken or too messed up or too far gone and then he transforms them into people that shine the beauty and power of his love. That is what God does best. It's what he's in the business of doing. And his redeeming love can transform every single one of us if we will let him. Today, Ruth 3, resting in the love of your Redeemer. This chapter begins, you'll notice, in verse 1 and in verse 18, it begins and ends with rest. Naomi's seeking rest for his daughter. At the end, she says, Boaz will not rest till this matter is completed. You know, one of the greatest gifts God has given to us as people made in his image is the gift of rest. In a physical sense, did you know that the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? And another seven years trying to fall asleep. That's 33 years spent in bed. Wow. Clearly God thinks rest is important. But God even designed the, our lives to have a rhythm of rest, right? Uh, we, we, he, he designed our days, our weeks, so that we can rest. Right? God worked for six days and then he rested, not because he had to, but to model for us to follow the same pattern of work and rest. And then working from rest. And yet rest doesn't come natural for us, does it? Many of us struggle to get good sleep from a physical standpoint. We struggle to rest. Beyond that, even from a mental, emotional standpoint, we struggle to take intentional times of rest because of our demanding schedules or because of what we think is so important, this or that, right? Our work life, and, and with the pandemic, it's even gotten more kind of weird where, where you're working from home, many of us, and so you're like, what's work time? What's, what's uh, relax time? What's school time? And what's, you know, Danny Beth, like, how, am I mom or am I teacher? Am I both? And it's, it's all weird. And what, you got all this together, and we struggle to find rest. In fact, one of the biggest lessons I learned from my sabbatical a few years ago was the significance of taking what one of my professors called regular rhythms of rest, whether that's daily, weekly, or yearly. You see, rest is rooted in the reality that God is in control, not you. Which is probably why it's so hard for us. Because you want to be in control. And I know that because I want to be in control. And yet a biblical understanding of rest goes even deeper. You see, when the Bible talks about rest, it doesn't just mean physical. It doesn't even just mean mental and emotional. The rest is a bigger idea. It's a bigger theme throughout the Bible. The Bible talks about rest as a fulfillment of a promise, especially God's promise. The Bible talks about rest as the joy of a journey completed. The Bible talks about rest as a coming home. When the Israelites anticipated the rest that they would have in the promised land, right, when they were on the journey in the wilderness, that anticipation of rest, being in the land of promise, God's promise fulfilled, the end of a journey, coming home, they, that, that anticipation fueled their desire to keep going. They knew they would experience rest. Even now, the New Testament calls us as Christians to experience a spiritual rest when we accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And as we sang, bound for glory, as Christians, we also anticipate an ultimate rest 
right? A complete rest from all suffering, from all evil, from all sin. When Jesus returns and takes us home to be with him, what a celebration that will be. In the book of Ruth, we see God working behind the scenes, as we've said all along, in the good and the bad, to bring about his plan of redemption. We see God working through ordinary people and ordinary events to accomplish something truly extraordinary. And the story, if you haven't been with us, I'll give you a quick recap. The story begins, chapter 1, with Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons fleeing Bethlehem, fleeing the land of promise, not a good idea, not a faith-filled plan, but fleeing the land of promise to enter into the neighboring country called Moab. And they sojourn there for years to find food because there was a famine in their land. And while they're there, the two sons marry Moabite women. But as, as it turns out, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies and then Naomi's two sons die as well in Moab. They went for food. They had family. Now there's no food, no family. Now she's empty. Naomi says, I'm empty. And so she returns to Bethlehem. She tells her daughter-in-law, you go back to your, 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 your parents. And she even says this. She, she blesses them. She says, the Lord grant that you find rest. There's that word again. Rest in the house of a new husband. But Ruth, her, one of her daughter-in-law, refuses to go. She says, no, I'm going to make a commitment to you, mother-in-law. I'm going to make a commitment to stick with you. And no matter what comes, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to die in the land that you go to. And your God will be my God. And so Naomi and Ruth go back to Bethlehem together and Naomi tells everyone, while with her daughter-in-law, who's, who's a, a great image of hope, she can't see it, and she says, I went back, I, I left full, but I came back empty. Call me Mara, which means bitter. All she could see was God's bitter providence. But in God's good providence, they returned back at just the right time when the beginning of the barley harvest by providence, I mean God's total control over all things for our good and for his glory. And so in chapter 2, Ruth goes out to find food for her and Naomi. And she, it says, happened, as the author says, it kind of build up excitement. She happens to glean in a field belonging to a worthy man named Boaz. And Boaz shows her incredible love, incredible kindness by allowing her to glean and even giving her more grain. And so when Ruth comes home, she has more than enough grain for her and Naomi. They have the food part, but there's no family part. And by another act of God's providence, Boaz is not just a good man, he's actually a close relative of Naomi. A kinsman redeemer is the biblical term. What does that mean? It means someone who is close enough in the family who could marry Ruth, and she's a widow, and there's no offspring to, follow, to continue the line of, of Naomi and Elimelech. And, and you had to have someone for the, land, the sake of the land that you have as a part of your tribe that they were allotted, and, and for the sake of having a son to care for them in their old age. They had, this, they had this custom that someone could redeem or marry this widow and continue the family line to provide for Naomi. And Boaz fits the bill. And so now in Ruth 3, the question that we're confronted with is, what will happen between Boaz and Ruth? This budding relationship that we see, is Ruth going to find rest in the home of a godly husband? And will God continue to fill Naomi's emptiness? Here's the first lesson we learn in chapter 3. Hope gives courage to step out in faith. Hope gives courage to step out in faith. In chapter 2, Ruth takes the initiative 
to go out and find food. And she says, I'll go, mother, I'll go, I'll go find food, even though it's dangerous for her as a foreign woman to go out by herself. Naomi should have helped her, but, but Naomi is paralyzed by fear, by her sorrow. All she can see is, I'm empty. But all of a sudden, as, as Ruth keeps coming back home with more and more grain, as she sees God providing, Naomi begins to see God's providential provision for her and for, her, for Ruth, and something begins to change in her. The barley harvest would have been seven weeks, and, and every day Ruth came back, and they probably had enough food to last the entire year. And all of a sudden, Naomi is, is seeing the hand of God, the good hand of God, not just in the hard stuff of life, but in the good stuff of life. And when she does, when she has eyes to see those things, it fuels hope in her heart. And that hope allows her to get her focus off herself to consider how she can best care for Ruth. That's why she says in verse 1, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you that it may go well with you? It's hope that gives her the courage to strategize a plan for Ruth to seek a marriage commitment from Boaz. I want you to see that's the power of hope. Hope helps us think and plan and dream in way of ways to do good. Hope helps us step out and pursue God-honoring goals and dreams and passions. Why? Because biblical hope is rooted, listen, it's rooted in the confidence and the assurance that our sovereign God is for us and not against us. That our sovereign God is ultimately out for our rescue, not to crush us. Do you have that kind of hope today? Some of us are so self-absorbed like Naomi in chapter 2 that we can't see the good things God is doing right now. Whether it's some sorrow that has come into your life like for Naomi or some struggle or someone has, has slighted you, some sin, something has happened and all you can see is, is, is your plight, is your, is your emptiness and you can't see God's providential provision and he wants us to open our eyes to look up and see that there is always hope. Or some of us are so paralyzed by fear, fear of the unknown, fear of what might happen, fear of what's happening in our world, fear of the, the virus, that we're missing opportunities to do real good. And this isn't just an individual thing. This is also true for our church. If we are, as a church, so paralyzed by fear of what is happening in our culture, if, if we are so paralyzed by the anger or bitterness by what is happening in our world, then listen, we will never engage in the mission of Jesus Christ. We won't do it. But in the midst of all the ugliness, if we will allow God to kindle hope or rekindle hope in our hearts, all of a sudden our eyes will be open and we'll be a force to be reckoned with. We won't put our heads in the sand. No, we're going to pull out weapons for war. No, hope will fuel our praying. It'll fuel our planning. It'll fuel our acting in a way to show our community and our world that there is a Redeemer and He's the only one who ever walked out of a tomb alive and He's the only one who can bring healing and transformation and reconciliation and joy and peace and eternal life. Church, that's what hope can do for a people that are willing to let hope give us the courage to step out of faith. If not, then we might as well close the doors and say, look, we're done. We're done. But Naomi was not done. 
She was not done. Hope is rising in her, and that hope turns into a plan. She knows that Boaz is a close relative. She says that. He's a redeemer. Again, in their custom, that's a term, a specific term. Not just anyone who can marry her, but a relative who can marry Ruth and preserve the family line. We, as, in our culture, we have, we have no understanding of that. That sounds so weird to us. In this culture, it was the most important thing. She knows that very night, she says to Ruth, this very night, Boaz will be winnowing the barley on the threshing floor. Right? They, they already harvested it all. Now it's time to win. Now it's time to get it ready. You see, once all the grain is harvested, it had to be processed. What they would do is they would take the stalks of barley, big stalks of barley, and they would get large sticks and they would beat those stalks and, and it would separate the grain from the husk, which is the shell, or they'd call it chaff. Right? They would beat it and the grain would fall to the ground. It would fall to the ground. But then you got this big pile, but it's still got the chaff mixed in with it. And so then they'd take a pitchfork and they'd throw it up in the air. And they especially do it like in a windy place, right? Where there's a breeze blowing. So they take a pitchfork and they throw the grain up in the air. And the chaff is so light, it blows away. Right? That's the, that, that means the chaff is meaningless. It, it's the, you disregard the chaff. You throw the grain up in the air and the heavy grain, the actual food, dro- drops straight to the ground. The chaff flows away and you got a big pile of good grain. And now they sift it, bag it, and they send it off. And this was a big celebration. It was like the culmination of all their hard work was to see the grain, all that they had done, all the work. Naomi is seeking rest for Ruth. Not rest from her hard work, but rest in the sense of security. Relief from the concern, where will they find food? Rest in the sense of acceptance of a loving husband. And so she gives Ruth very specific instructions. She says, okay, here's what you do, my daughter. Wash up and anoint yourself. Why is she saying that? Is she telling her, like, put on the best makeup and the best... No, no. I mean, she wants her to look good, but look... I think Ruth had been wearing clothes to signify the mourning of her husband, of her dead husband. I, I would venture to say she, she looked like someone in mourning and Naomi is saying to Ruth, as hope is rising, listen Ruth, the time for mourning is over. Wash up, anoint yourself with perfume, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor tonight. Tonight. And notice she says, stay out of sight of Boaz. Don't try to be seen by the men, right? This is, a, this is a group of men. It's probably not a good scene for you to be hanging out with. She said, but then, when he's sleeping, when he's finished for the night, and he lays down right next to the grain pile, you uncover his feet quietly, softly is the word in there, lie down at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. This is an incredibly risky plan. This, but this is not normal, okay? You're, if you're thinking, oh, this must just be a custom I'm not aware of. No, it's not normal. Ruth would be out at night with a group of men celebrating. That's dangerous. There's also risk that her actions would be seen as scandalous. And if seen, if she was seen, gossip would spread that Ruth was trying to seduce Boaz. And yet Naomi is trusting the providential provision of God. She can see Ruth has already attracted the, the attention of Boaz and hope is rising that God may indeed be working behind the scenes. Her plan is ingenious. It involves boldness and discreetness. 
It's all meant to communicate to Boaz that Ruth is is open and seeking a God-honoring relationship. Listen, this is a marriage proposal, not an invitation for sex. If you listen to podcasts these days, if you watch videos, even if you try to read certain Bible studies, some people see this scene as overtly sexual, as if Ruth is inviting Boaz to engage her in a salacious manner. I think, I, I, I don't see that in the text. You might say, wow, it's very sensual, right? She, she's definitely putting herself out there. Yes, but I think we, we read into this a, an overly sexualized version of the story because we live in an overly sexualized society. If you read the actual text and you look at the context of the characters of Boaz and Ruth, it paints a very clear picture. This is a scene of purity and integrity. This plan involves the audacity. Yes. A woman is initiating a marriage proposal. That's audacious. A Moabite woman is doing this. That's downright crazy. And yet the plan involves restraint, not just audacity, restraint. She's not forcing his hand in public, she's not trying to manipulate him with her beauty in public. She's not, she's not taking off, she's wearing a cloak, remember? She's not there in some scandalous outfit trying to manipulate, no. She's willing to humbly accept the response even though she knows her request will be life-changing and costly for Boaz. Hope is rising in Ruth as well. And so that's why she goes, right? What would, what would, what would cause her, what would compel her to go? Hope is rising in her too. She sees the connection with, with Boaz. Lesson number two. Stepping out in faith takes boldness and love. Ruth promises to follow all of Naomi's instructions. Verse 5, all you say I will do. Verse 6, she does just as her mother-in-law commanded her. Remember, this was harvest time, a time of feasting and celebrating God's provision. Boaz and the men would have slept outside near the piles of barley to protect them from theft. And after a night of celebrating... By the way, it says he had eaten and drunk. By the way, I don't believe he is drunk. It simply says his heart was merry. Listen, most guys will tell you what makes their heart merry? Food. (laughs) Right? The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. All right, God, people were reading as if he's like drunk. No, he just feels good because he's eating an incredible meal. So he's feeling good about the year's crops. His stomach is full and he is feeling good. And now he goes to sleep right on the ground, right next to the grain where his spot, he's in charge of, you know, it's, it's his field. He gets the best spot near the grain. Everybody else is kind of scattered out and it's quiet now. It's, go, it's kind of midnight and that's Ruth's cue. Can you imagine her heart pounding with anticipation as she quietly walks among the men to the spot of Boaz and lays down at his feet and uncovers his feet. Sure enough, his feet get cold and he awakens and he's shocked to see someone sleeping at his feet. What man? There's all this space, guys. Who could be sleeping at my feet? are you? This is literally what he says. Who are you? The moment of truth. 
this is this is maybe the climax. This is the climax of this chapter. Maybe the whole book. Who are you? What are you doing? What is going to happen as Ruth discloses herself? Look at verse nine. She answered, "I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer." What she says is brilliant and beautiful. She identifies herself as his servant, right? Courageous yet humble. Then she says, spread your wings. The the Hebrew word for wings there is the same word for garment. Spread your garment over me. This is a metaphor in this culture used to, to describe and signify marriage. It's used in Ezekiel 16.8. It's used in later Arab writings. To spread your garment over someone would mean you, you identify them as yours, that you're, you're committing to marriage. But what is so brilliant is that Ruth is using the very same language that Boaz used himself in chapter 2. When Ruth asks asked to glean in the fields of Boaz and he graciously allows her He comments in chapter 2 that he had heard all about what she had done to leave her native land and leave her people in order to care and provide for her mother-in-law. And in chapter 2, verse 12, here's what Boaz says to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done, in other words, what you have done for Naomi, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, by Yahweh, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You hear that? He literally said, I bless you. May you, find, may you find comfort and safety and security under the wings of Yahweh. And now Ruth takes this very language and says, Boaz, remember when you prayed that the Lord would spread his wings of protection over me? Now it's time for you to be the answer to that prayer. Now it's time for you to be the provision of God. You spread your protection over me as my redeemer. I want to marry you. But I know that in order for that to happen, you have to take a huge step. And yet I'm asking anyway that you would do it. We don't know if Naomi told her to say all this. We don't have that. But what we do know is that Ruth is learning herself to step out in faith with boldness and with love. A Moabite woman just proposed to an Israelite man a servant worker in the field just proposed to the owner of the field. A younger person just proposed to a, an older person. This breaks all the rules, all the norms. And Boaz is blown away by her bold and humble request. Look what he says in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, a term of endearment, You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He says the kindness shown now is greater than the first. What's he referring to? He's referring to the first kindness, the first act of love that Ruth showed Naomi. By not forsaking her, but sticking with her, clinging to her, and gleaning in the fields day in and day out to provide for her needs. 
Boaz says, you've gone even further than providing for your mother-in-law. Now you're coming to me rather than a younger man or a richer man. You're coming to me as a redeemer. Here's what we need to understand to, 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 to feel the weight of this. Ruth could have just remarried. You realize that? In other words, she could have chosen any other man or gone after another man and, and, and not a relative. And if they married, right, if she married just some other man, then, then Naomi's line ends. No son to continue that family line. Her land would be lost. Her family lineage would be lost on the records. That would be shame upon shame upon their family. But Ruth could have done that. She was a free woman. She was a single woman, a widow. She could have done that, but she didn't. And Boaz knows it. You could have gone after a younger man, a rich man. You come after me, an older man, and, you're, and, and a family member as your redeemer to, to keep the family line going. A, a remarriage would have provided for Ruth, but completely neglected Naomi. But Ruth was not willing to do that. She shows an even greater kindness to Naomi by seeking Boaz to be her redeemer. By the way, the word kindness, again, it shows up. I said this the last time. The word kindness, it's a strong word. It's not just kindness. It's, it's the Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D. It means covenant love. It means costly, loyal love. It's a divine love, the same love God shows to us. That's the word he's using to describe how Ruth has treated Naomi and Boaz. She has repeatedly showed Chesed love, loyal love, covenant love. And it has touched Boaz's heart. He is touched by her character. He says, you're a worthy woman. Same word used in chapter 2 to describe Boaz. A worthy man, an honorable man. And Boaz says, I will do everything you ask, Ruth. I'm not going to do it out of obligation, by the way. Right? Because there's already been strong hints of affection in this story. This is a love story in many ways. And Ruth, right now, Boaz right now is clearly saying, Ruth, I love you. I'm willing to do it. It's not like, oh, you twisted my arm. You've been so kind. I'm going to do this thing. No. You, wow, you, you would want to marry me? I want to marry you. That's been my, I've been thinking about you. I didn't know how to do it. How do I, how do I approach a Moabite woman? And what will be, now it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. We're going to get married. As, no, notice what he says. Verse 13. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Bold love. Boldness in, in both ways. Ruth and Boaz, love in both ways. They're both stepping out in faith. Lesson three. You can rest in the promise of a redeemer. Boaz continues to treat Ruth with the utmost of respect and care. He tells her to stay where she is for the night to avoid putting her in danger. Right? He wouldn't say, go home now in the middle of the night. That's crazy. But he says, leave early so that there's no salacious rumors about our conduct, about your conduct. Now he does remind her there, there is a closer redeemer. Right? There's a closer um, person in the lineage, a family member who has the first right of redeeming you, of marrying you. And we got we to figure that out, but I'm going to take care of it. But for now, here's my commitment to you. You, you can't just go home empty-handed because you could tell Naomi all you want about my commitment, but there's, where's the proof? He says, take your cloak off, hold it out in front of you. And he pours six 
whatever you might call it, I don't even know, but it's basically 60 to 100 pounds of grain he pours, and she has to wrap it up and put it on top of her head. And he says, okay, go, so nobody sees you. Go back to Naomi. Go. And when she gets home, Naomi asks Ruth, what happened? She couldn't sleep all night. What happened? And, and Ruth shares the incredible news about the conversation with Boaz. And then she adds this in verse 17. Saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You see, Boaz realizes, he understands that his redeeming Ruth is also a redeeming of Naomi. He's filling Ruth up by marrying her, but he's also filling Naomi up by providing for her family line. Naomi went away full and she thought she came back empty, but God is using Boaz to show Naomi that he can turn sorrow into joy, that he can turn emptiness into fullness, that he can turn anxiety into rest. And Naomi gets it. That's why she says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. I said that this chapter is all about rest. Christian, are you resting in the promise of a redeemer yourself? You see, Boaz, as a redeemer, points us to the ultimate redeemer, as we said all along, Jesus Christ. Boaz shows loving kindness, chesed to Ruth, the kind of love that is always costly. You see, Boaz offers her a risky love, a love that risks his reputation by marrying a Moabite woman, a love that risks his own family lineage because his future son will actually be the son of Naomi and Elimelech and continue that line. It's risky. It costs him grain. He lavishes Ruth and Naomi with an abundance of grain. He didn't have to do that, but it cost him. What Boaz does here in this story is incredibly costly. He doesn't have to do it, but that's what a redeemer does. He lays down his life to rescue another life. And that's what Jesus has done for you. You see, when God saw you and I languishing in our own spirit, Emptiness, our spiritual emptiness, the emptiness in our hearts due to sin, due to selfishness, all the things in life that you, you look in the world, you're like, the world is so messed up. I know. Look in the mirror. It is messed up, right? It's our spiritual emptiness. We try to fill it with all our own things and we can't get it full, right? But, but when God sees this, when he sees us filling stuff that will never satisfy, he doesn't just look and go, well, somebody will have to deal with it. No, he looks and he has compassion. He has chesed. He says, I will not let this stay. I have to do something. And so in love, in love, he knew that apart from us, he would never find rest. In love, he comes down. He comes down. He knows that in, in all of our striving, we're, we're trying to prove that we're worthy, right? We're, we're trying to, to prove that we measure up. We're trying to prove that we can be accepted by others. We're trying to prove that, that, that we're not a disappointment. But there's this at nagging emptiness in us. And that's why Jesus came to show us, I love you. God loves you. You want me to show you how much I love you? I'm going to step down ahead of heaven, come down on earth, and live the life you should have lived but couldn't. And Jesus lives the perfect life. And yet he's rejected by every single person, even his closest followers. And then he goes to the cross. And he dies the death that we should have died. And that's why Jesus could utter these words. 
Come to me. It's an invitation. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. There it is. Rest. Boaz knew it would cost him dearly to bring Ruth and Naomi to rest. Jesus knew it would cost him infinitely more than we could ever imagine to give us the rest he just promised. Jesus knew he would have to die for us. He wouldn't just have to marry us. He would have to die for our spiritual emptiness. He would have to die because we, we reject God and our wages of sin is death. And so he was rejected and he was crucified and he bore all of God's punishment for our sin. And listen to me. Jesus didn't just have to do it. All right? If you think Boaz just had to do it, you're missing the point. Jesus didn't just have to do it. He looked you in the eyes. He was looking right at you from the cross and he said, I am glad to do it. I am willing to do it. I am an honorable man, a worthy man. And that is what is compelling me because I could never spend eternity without you. And he looks at you and just like Boaz, he says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. On the cross, Jesus was thinking about you. For the joy set before him, Hebrews tells us, he knew that he would lose everything, and yet you would gain everything. He knew that if he died, you would live eternally. He knew that if he was emptied, truly emptied, you would be full. That if he became poor, you could become rich spiritually. And that's why he endured the cross. So that if you and I would turn from our sin... Literally, if we would admit, you know what? I am spiritually empty apart from Jesus. I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. I need someone so I, have to, I don't have to prove myself to God or anybody else. I can just be forgiven. I can just be loved. If you turn from your sin and receive the, the gift of Jesus by faith, you are forgiven. You are set free. You are loved eternally. The God of the universe, when you do that, spreads his garment over you, his wings over you, and he becomes your refuge, your, your fortress, and your redeemer. And when you find protection on the wings of Jesus, listen, you'll never be empty. Yeah, in this world, you'll experience physical emptiness, maybe emotional emptiness, but when you have Jesus, you will never experience the emptiness a feeling like you're all alone. A feeling like you'll never be loved, never known, never provided for. Jesus comes and says, I took that emptiness so that you'll never have to experience it. All you will experience is my presence, the fullness of it. Now, right now, because I love you and because I'm a willing redeemer, he, 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 he doesn't just say, I'm going to give you salvation now. He says, listen, even though you didn't earn this and you, and you don't deserve it, I'm going to come be your redeemer now. And then after that, because he didn't just stay dead on the cross, he walked out of the tomb alive and he gives us the gift of his spirit as a, as a guarantee. It's kind of like 60 pounds of grain. Here, here's, here's what, the best thing I can give you right now to show you that one day I'm going to come back so you have full redemption. I'm bound for glory. Are you? Are you bound for heaven's home Jesus will not rest until one day he takes you home, Christian, and he, and he opens you to the ultimate rest, the fulfillment of all of his promises and the completion of all the journey, all the laboring and all the disappointments and everything. When he shows you for that first moment that he is yours and you are his forever, it'll be gone. 
All your sin, all your shame, gone when Jesus calls your name. Don't buy the lie or the narrative that there is something that is lacking in your life. When you have Jesus, you have it all. You have all that you need. Yeah, this life stinks in many ways. But you're bound for glory. Everything that you lose now, you're going to get back a, a millionfold. And everything you don't have, you're going to have in ways that you can't even imagine because the best is yet to come. Are you feeling weary today? Are you anxious? Are you, are you struggling to find rest? All I can say is turn to Jesus or turn again to Jesus. Find your delight anew in the promise that he has fully and forever redeemed you and keep hope alive as he will return to finish what he started at home in the arms of your Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we know we know that we live in a world full of sorrow, struggle, evil. And for many of us, it's, it's so hard to, to look beyond those things, not to minimize them, but we can't see anything other than those things. God, we confess that some of us this morning, all we can see is your bitter providence. I pray that today, I pray that even in this moment, you're, you would let a, just one, one ray of your sun shine through into the hearts of those who need hope. To be reminded, there is a sweet providence. There is a, a plan that you have orchestrated, a redemption that you have already accomplished so that when we look out, we can see, yes, the hard, the bad, the ugly, but we can also see the good, the beautiful, the praiseworthy because we know our Redeemer lives and when we see you face to face, it will all make sense. God, for those who've never turned to Jesus, maybe their parents have taught them this, but they've never trusted Christ. Maybe they're watching and a friend or family member invited them, they're here. God, I'm praying that this very moment you would bring the gift of new life as hearts turn to you and cry out in their hearts, Jesus, I am broken and empty and I need you to be my redeemer. I trust in your death and resurrection. God, do what only you can do. For all of us, I pray that we would find rest in the loving arms of our redeemer. And to be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can say, look what, the, look, what the, look what the Lord has done in my life. When the world says, look at the crazy stuff is happening, we can say, yeah, but look what the Lord has done. Can, can laws change hearts? Can education change hearts? No, Lord, we know you can change hearts. Please do it. For the glory of your name and the beauty of your church, your bride, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.